that are here, you have an amazing responsibility today because not only do you get to encourage uh, those who normally probably sit around you, but also today you have the opportunity through the way that you listen to the sermon, through the way you take notes, through the way you, you engage, to disciple those who are much smaller than you, who don't always have the opportunity to be in here. Uh, so you have a great opportunity to disciple uh, the children in here today and help teach them and show them how it is that we engage with the Word of God through its preaching. In chapter 8 of Daniel, uh, to begin, question just, when you look at the world, at the countries, and all the rulers, and all the fighting, and all the quarrels, all the suffering that takes place, and all the pain, what do you think? Do you ever feel lost? Do you ever wonder, is there a purpose? Does it ever just feel completely chaotic to you when you just begin looking at the things on a global scale? Or if we kind of zoom more in at America, and we're to look at maybe Fox, CNN, or whatever, whatever your favorite network is. Um, when you're hearing whatever it is that's coming across the headlines there, or when you're reading about gun control, or shootings in school, or politics, and all the drama, whether that's at a state level or more the national level, or whether you're reading things on Facebook or whatever source of media that you're on normally. I was told Facebook is for old people now, and it's not the cool thing now anymore, Dad. So I, I, don't, I don't know what you're on and what's cool, but if you're on whatever media, if uh, when you hear what your neighbors are saying or what your, your coworkers at the water cooler or wherever it is, what they're discussing, when you begin talking about things in the world, in the state, at the national level, do you feel that there's a level of comfort that surrounds you? Or, or do you find that there's a level of anxiety that builds? Do you find that you're, you're surrounded just in your heart just with peace? Or, or is there an anger? Is there maybe a bitterness that begins to, to brew within you? Today, we're in a very strange chapter. We're in chapter 8 of Daniel. It's apocalyptic, so it's very symbolic language. We're going to read about animals, horns, and fighting, and just weird things like that. Um, but what we're going to see is that in the midst of fighting, in the midst of what looks like suffering and, and chaos, and what we might just call darkness, that we're going to see that our God, the God of the Bible, that He rules, and that He's on His throne, and that He knows the future. And He also, He tells us, His children, the church, those who believe in Him, through His Word, He tells us what is going to happen. Do you know that our God knows the future? Like, do you know that? Like, not just like theoretical, like, do you actually know in your heart that our God knows the future? And if we believe that, if we believe that He knows the future, has ordained the future, then what we understand that life and the things that happen in this world are not as chaotic as it appears, but rather it's unfolding as God has planned. And if that's true, then we do not need to be discouraged. We do not need to be anxious, but we can patiently endure with hope. Let me ask you, do you want hope? Do you have hope? Um, today, in this passage, which, which might seem like a strange chapter here in Daniel 8, we see a truth about who our God is 
that's able to give us hope and strengthen us today. So what I want to do is we're going to read Daniel 8, and, and then we're, we're going to pray. And one thing we do is we stand here at the reading of God's Word. So I'm going to invite you to stand, and we're going to read the entire chapter. We have read so far all previous seven chapters, and today we're going to read chapter 8. And we read and we stand because we believe God's Word comes with His full authority, comes with God's full inspiration. So we do so to recognize and to honor our God. Chapter 8. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw... I was in Susa, the capital, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up at last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him. And there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from, a, came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal. And he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great, even to the host of heaven, and some of the hosts, and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and, from the, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown." And a place will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn behind, between his eyes is the first king. 
As for the horn that was broken in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but none by his own, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction, and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but not by human hand. The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Let's pray. Father, Father, give us understanding today in your word. You've given us your word. You've given it to us that we would understand who you are. That we would understand what you have done for us through your son Jesus and how we are called to live because of faith in you. And so Lord, I pray today as we study this chapter that God, you would help us understand that God, you rule on your throne. That there is nothing that takes place outside of your rule, outside of your dominion, what you have not ordained. God, we, we pray for strength. I pray for comfort. I pray for everyone who is here that just as we listen and as we study your word that our hearts would be comforted that we would have a peace and because of who you are and the grace that you give us, we would patiently endure. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. I want to spend a few moments and we're just going to walk through the text and we're just going to give a, a bird's eye overview of what takes place. Now this chapter... It takes place after chapter 7 and after the vision of chapter 7, and it connects it. If you notice, in the third reign of the king Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And so this is connected to the vision that was in Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, we read about four beasts that, that comprise the kingdoms that are going to exist right up into the New Testament. And here in chapter 8, we're going, to re, we're going to zoom in on beast number 2 and 3 of chapter 7. Here, they're pictured as a ram and a goat. And what we see is that there's a ram with two horns. One is a little higher than the other, corresponds with the bear in chapter 7 that was raised up a little bit on one side. And we see that, uh, that this ram is a dominating force against the other nations. None can stand against it. But then we're told a goat is going to appear. And it moves quickly as if it doesn't even touch the ground. We see that in verse 5. That's connecting to, in chapter 7, the third beast was a leopard with eagle's wings. It moves quickly. And we see that it charges the ram in all of its fury, and it's going to trample it down into the ground. It's a weird chapter, isn't it? Like if you're here in chapter 7, chapter 7 is weird. Chapter 8 is strange. Now when we come into verses 20 and 21, we're given some interpretation here. We're told the ram is the Medo-Persian Empire. And that's the one that comes after Babylon. In fact, in chapter 5, at the very end of chapter 5, we see the Medes and the Persians. They come and overthrow Babylon. And then we understand the goat is the Grecian Empire. 
And there's this large horn, the first of its kings that dominates everyone. Well, who is that of Greece? Surely it's Alexander the Great, the one who conquered much of the known world, who did so with great speed. But then we see that this horn, Alexander the Great, will be broken all of a sudden, and four other horns will come up. Well, what do we understand? We understand that Alexander the Great died at the age of 33, at a very young age, when his kingdom is growing, and four horns, his kingdom is divided up among four of his generals who then each have a kingdom under their own. And one of these kingdoms, the Seleucid kingdom, will produce a little horn which will greatly oppose the people of God. If you know history, or if you've been in Daniel, you know that this refers to Antiochus for Epiphanes. And so what we have here is that God has just revealed in chapter 8 of Daniel the next 400 years of political events that await his people. So I just want to pause. Before we kind of get into the vision and we look more at it, I want us to just make a connection here between history, between prophecy, and uh, with our faith. Because what Daniel gave as prophecy to us where we stand is history right he looked forward to it but where we stand we look back at it and what we understand is that our God has told the future and he's done it with great specificity now why is this important because when we say that we have faith in our God that is not just a, a word that we throw out there. That is not that word faith doesn't just mean, well, it means we just have good feelings and happy thoughts and, and we just really hope everything's going to work out. Our faith in God is very different than perhaps a child's faith in Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny or any other type of person. Our faith is filled with logic and reason. Think about this. You see, our God, He reveals Himself to to us in His Word. He tells us what He's going to do in His Word. And then what's crazy about it, He actually does it. And we see this all throughout Scripture. If you know your Bibles, back in Genesis, God takes a man named Abram, Abram, changes his name to Abraham, and when He makes a covenant with him, what does He say? He says, Eventually, your people will be enslaved for 400 years. After that, I will bring them out, and they will then go into the promised land that I have given them. And what do we read? If we make our way through Genesis, we see Israel goes into uh, into Egypt, where they are there for how long? 400 years. And then what does God do? God sends a man named Moses to bring his people out and begin leading them to the promised land. We see that all throughout Scripture. God says, this is who I am, this is what I'm going to do, and then he does it. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9, 10, 11, this is what it says. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. In verse 11 he says, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Hear this. Our God rules over all things. He knows all things. He has told us what he will do before he does it. 
This is our God. This is who we put our trust in. So when we say we have faith in our God, that's not saying we're just having hope and sunshine and dandelions and just praying everything works out. You guys understand? Like, this is a logical, reasonable faith. We have information. We have knowledge. Our faith has a sure foundation under it, and it is the God who has revealed himself in his word and time and time again has said what he will do, and then he does it exactly as he has said it. This is our God. And so now to come back now to Daniel. Daniel, what I want to do is just quickly just walk through this passage and say, what do we see? This God, our God, what does he rule over? Because in this darkness, in this chaos, what we see is that actually God is ruling over this entire situation. In fact, in the beginning of Daniel, Daniel chapter 1 verse 2, we read the reason Babylon has overcome Jerusalem is why? Because God gave Jerusalem into the hands of Babylon. All throughout the book of Daniel, God rules, God rules, God rules throughout the entire book. And here, around 548 B.C., which is roughly probably the time of chapter 8, eight to nine years before the Medo-Persian Empire will take over Babylon, hundreds of years before the Grecian Empire will come, we are told what will happen. And not only that, we're told that there will be a large conspicuous horn, surely referring to Alexander the Great. So what we understand is that God rules over all these kingdoms. He rules over Judah. He rules over Babylon. He rules over the Medo-Persian Empire. He rules over Babylon, or over Greece. Get them all confused. And if you were with us in chapter 7, we then see there's another beast, Rome, which really typifies all nations and rebellions against God. But not only that, we see that God rules over the kings also. God knows the kings of these kingdoms. He hasn't just ordained the kingdoms like the big picture events. He's ordained all the people. He says, and soon this one conspicuous horn will be broken off as if something sudden will happen. And we know that Alexander at the age of 33 dies very quickly. And then what will become of his nation? Four kingdoms will arise from him. The generals will arise, which will eventually produce Antiochus Epiphanes. God knows not just the big picture events. He knows every detail of every day. Now, there's some people, and maybe you're here and you're wrestling. How do I understand God's sovereignty? How do I understand what does he, what does he know? What does he ordain? And some people kind of think of God's sovereignty of bumper bowling. Have you ever bumper bowled, you know, bowling with bumpers? It's okay, guys. Some of you do that. That's all right. I've done it with my kids. But uh, um, in bumper bowling, you know, you, you, got, you got a bumper on this side and a bumper on this side. They're like the boundaries, right? So the ball can go anywhere in between, and that's fine. It's going to stay in between these bumpers for the most part. Although, who's ever bowled a gutter ball with bumpers, huh? You know it can be done. That's the crazy part. So some people kind of believe this is God's sovereignty. He ordains this event. He ordains this event. It doesn't matter what happens in between. Like, that's okay. God just kind of ordains these big ticket events. But that's not what we see in God's word. I mean, think about it. Let's just take one example in our lives. What are the big things that take place in our lives? You realize there's probably like three or four things in your life that are big. You were born. That's a big one. 
Um, you got married, perhaps. Uh, first job. Um, maybe had children. I mean, those are kind of big things that happen. Are those the only things that God has ordained in your life, or has he ordained all the details in your life as well? Think about it. Uh, who'd you get married to? You might answer that. Uh, you say, why did you marry the person you did? Well, I met them at college. Okay? And then you might say, well, why did that person go to college? Well, because that's the college that accepted me. Well, why did they accept you? Well, because of grades and I met certain qualifications. Well, why did you meet those grades and qualifications? Well, because I had good parents or good teachers or I had some internal drive that was given to me and I just loved to study. That was not me. And you might say, well, why did you have those good parents or good teachers or that great internal drive? And we could just keep going. And what we see is that these big moments in our lives are not islands. They're not separated, disconnected from all these other little things, but they're all connected. These big moments, these three, four, maybe five things that happen in our life are connected to the millions and millions and millions of little moments that all take place in between that form the big events. These big events don't take place without the little ones all taking place in between them. So you can't have a God who ordains big events without all the means to get to those events also. So if he ordains the big, he ordains every single small event. Or to go back to the bowling analogy, he ordains every spin and curve of that ball as it makes its way down. This is how God reveals himself in the scripture. This is what he's doing here in chapter 8. And we see that he also rules over suffering. Look at this little horn. Let's just see what do we learn about this little horn who most likely is Antiochus for Epiphanes. If you look at verse 10, we read that the little horn will trample the host and the stars. Surely that's referring to God's people. And we see that Antiochus, he killed thousands of Jews. Thousands and thousands of them. Verse 11, we see that this little horn will think of itself as great as the prince of hosts. Surely that's a reference to God. Verse 25, we read that he will rise up against the prince of princes, who probably another reference to God. In fact, if you know, the word Epiphanes, that's a title that he added on to his name. So it's actually Antiochus IV. That's who he is. And then he added the name Epiphanes to himself, which means uh, God manifest or illustrious God. Think he thought highly of himself? Like, think of, your, think, think of like you're on a basketball team, and one of your friends is like, yeah, my name's, uh, you know, Bob. I'm the better one. I'm the best one on the team. That's how he gives his title. That's what he puts on the back of his jersey. Or maybe you're, you have someone at work, and he says, yeah, you can call me the best one here. That's how you can call me. Don't call me by my name. Just call me the best one here. That's how Antiochus reveals himself. I'm Antiochus Epiphanes. I am God. If you want to look at God, just look at me. That's what he wants people to think. Verses 11 through 12, we see he stopped the sacrifices of the temple. He threw truth to the ground. Most likely, that's a reference to he burned scrolls and scrolls and scrolls of God's word. The Torah, which makes up the first five books of the Bible, uh, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. 
he burned thousands of those scrolls. And then he took an altar of Zeus, he placed it in the temple, and sacrificed a pig on it. Now, if you don't know, Jews in the Old Testament, they did not eat pork. It was considered unclean. They did not know the, the amazingness of bacon and sausage. Luckily, all things have been declared clean now. Uh, that's what we get amens on, right? Yes, yes, amen. But to go into the Holy of Holies and to set up a pagan altar and then to sacrifice a pig on it, there was nothing more sacrilegious you could do towards God and against the people of God. Verse 23, we read he had a bold face. If you have the NIV, it might say he has a stern face. Antiochus, he backed down from no one. He thought himself as God. He did what he wanted. He opposed anyone and everyone. Verse 24, he will kill many of the saints. Again, referencing believers. Verse 25, we read that he will destroy many. Verse 25, we also read, he shall be broken, but by no human hand. Well, that's interesting. So there's a rebellion that began against um, Antiochus and against uh, the and against the Seleucid Empire by the Jews, led by Judas Maccabeus. Many of you might have heard the Maccabean Revolt. And, and they lead this revolt, eventually overcoming, because the Seleucids have already been weakened by Rome and by Egypt and by other nations. Um, and, and so they actually gain their victory, and that's what actually... Jews will celebrate today as Hanukkah. So if you want to know where Hanukkah comes from, we're reading about the origins of Hanukkah in Daniel chapter 8 of what are the events that led to that and then the freedom that they experienced by Judas Maccabeus over Antiochus and the Seleucids. That's where they then come with Hanukkah. Uh, but what we understand is that Antiochus, he was not killed by the Maccabeans. He was not killed by other Jews. In fact, he was killed by no one but rather, strangely, it appears that there was some type of like organ failure that happens in his life, and he falls over dead. So what do we learn? We learn there's a man. He will rise up against God, against God's people. He will cause great destruction. He will oppose them. He will attack them. And yet, when God declares it is time for him to die, he will die. He is not greater than God. He is not God. He might think he is God, but he is subject to every rule of God. In fact, what we see is that God rules over time. Verse 13, we read what seems to be a conversation between two angels. One asks, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offerings, the transgression that makes desolate, the giving over the sanctuary, and hosts to be trampled underfoot? In other words, how long will this suffering last? How long will God's people experience these dark days? Now let me say this, in chapter 8, largely, commentators, theologians, we all agree. There's not a lot of discrepancy in chapter 8. Some of the details of, of some of the particular words, there is some confusion on at times. Uh, and this 2300 evenings and mornings is definitely where a little of that confusion would occur. What does it actually mean? Is it used the same way when we read Genesis chapter 1, that God, on day 1, God created the heavens and the earth, and, then, you know, and there was morning and evening, day 2, we read what he did, there was morning and evening. Is it to be read like that? So there's actually 2,300 days. Or it could literally be read that there's 2,300 sacrifices, and so rather than 2,300 days, there'd be 1,050 days. 
because there was a sacrifice morning and the evening. So is that what it refers to? If you try to line up the 2300 to a particular event in history or a time frame, you're not going to be able to do it. No one's been able to do it. There's debate all over. Well, it's a little less than six, it's a little less than seven years. It's a little less than three and a half years if we do it the other way. What actually does these, let these numbers mean? When we come to apocalyptic literature, we remember, we start first, everything is symbolic. And so if we come and say, okay, these, these, these numbers are symbolic, we might not be exactly sure what they're referring to and, and how we're to understand them, but we can understand this. What God is saying is that this suffering will last for a set period of time. And it will not go a day past it, whatever that is. And we know God knows this time. Verse 17, we read, this vision is for the time of the end. The end of what? Again, there's discrepancy Well, what's actually being referred to. Because we know in Daniel 7, we kind of had the scope of all of history. There we read what looks like we saw all the way to the return of Christ and to the consummation of the kingdom. And so, the end of time, in a sense. But that doesn't seem to be what this is referring to. So this end appears to be an end, another end. Maybe just the end of this time frame, this period there is some confusion on exactly what's being declared. But if we just step back and say, okay, but what's the truth that we see? God rules. He's in control. He's ordained the kingdoms. He's ordained the kings. He's over the suffering. And he knows exactly how long the suffering will last. And he will bring it to an end. So what we see, we step back and look at this, is that God's people has many dark days ahead. That's what we see in this chapter. Daniel's given a vision of the future. Now to us, it's history. And while this chapter speaks of Persia and Greece and Antiochus Epiphanes, because it's apocalyptic literature, we know that it's speaking more than just these. It's not just one despot ruler against God's people, but it's a picture of Satan's rebellion against the rule of God and his people. That's what we have here. We have a future look at God's people will still be experiencing persecution from Satan, from the world. And this is nothing new to us. In fact, we've been seeing this ever since sin entered into the garden back in Genesis chapter 3. Many of you might be familiar with the story. Adam and Eve, they're created in the image of God. God walks with them. He dwells with them. Uh, there's great blessing. But then they're tempted and they sin. They reject God. They reject his rule. They say, you know what? We're going to decide to do what we want. And God then comes into the garden and he gives judgment. He gives judgment to the man, the woman, and even to the serpent. And this is what he writes in Genesis 3.15. We're going to see there's a judgment. We're going to get a, be given a picture of history, the darkness that will exist, but also the hope that exists. Because in Genesis 3.15, we have the first glimpse picture of the gospel. Let me just read it. This is God speaking. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is what God says to Satan, to the serpent. So what we see is that history will be a battle between the offspring of Satan 
and the offspring of the woman. And specifically, this is referring to Jesus, the offspring of the woman, the, the one who will eventually come and crush the head of the serpent, but also it can be seen to represent just the people of God throughout history. And so what we understand is that God's people, while here on earth, will be persecuted by empires, by states, and by rulers of the world. That's what we saw all in chapter 7. That's again what we see here in chapter 8. And that's what we've seen all throughout the Bible. Remember, when God's people were formed and, 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 they, went into, and they went into Egypt, they come under the rule of Pharaoh. And what does Pharaoh do? He oppresses them. He kills them, and he throws every male baby into the Nile River. What's he trying to do? He's seeking to kill the seed of the woman. He's looking at overcoming God's plan. He's trying to kill the one who would eventually come, the serpent crusher. Babylon oppresses God's people, destroys his temple, is willing to throw people into the fiery furnace, and sets up a golden statue and says, you will worship it. In the book of Esther, if you remember Esther, we preached on Esther uh, Easter last year. We read there, that's the, that's the picture of the Persian Empire, and there is a man named Haman. And what does Haman try to do? Haman tries to create a plan and is almost successful with it that will destroy all the Jewish people, the people of God who are worshiping God. Again, we see Satan rising through the nations, through the, through the powers of this world to overcome God's people. As we progress through history and move into the New Testament, or even in the Old, we see people like Antiochus Epiphanes that we read about here. Then we went into the New Testament, we see people like Nero, Domitian, these rulers of Rome. We see Catholic popes that will bring great destruction on God's people. We see Hitler. We see Stalin. And we see many, many, many rulers all throughout history that greatly will oppress God's people. And today we could look. There are websites that are dedicated to looking at the suffering of God's people. There are millions and millions of Christians today who are being persecuted for their faith. What we have here in Daniel 8 is a picture of what happens to God's people throughout time. But what we understand is the battle will not last forever. For we're told all the way back in Genesis 3.15, there is one coming. There is a serpent crusher. There is a day coming. And today we celebrate Palm Sunday. And this is a glorious day. For today, we celebrate that Jesus enters into Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, and he comes with a purpose. Because later this week, on Friday, he will leave Jerusalem carrying a cross, making his way to the hill of Golgotha, where he will be nailed to it as the Son of Man, the Son of God, so that he would die for the sins of this world, that we who believe in him would be forgiven. And that we would be adopted not only to God's family, but, but he would actually bring us out of citizenship into this world into a citizenship into his kingdom. So while we still live here, we know that now, because of our faith, we become citizens of God's kingdom. And we have great uh, hope, a confident hope, that when Christ returns, he will come forth to bring about the new heavens and new earth, and we will live there with him 
forever. And that's what Revelation 21 and 22, it describes this new earth. It describes this new heaven. It describes the kingdom that we live in with God. And so, but now today, we look on Palm Sunday. Christ has come. And we remember that he is making his way to the cross as he did 2,000 years ago. That he would do what? He would crush the head of the serpent. That's why he came. Jesus is the one who has been prophesied all throughout the Old Testament. He's the one who was born in Bethlehem as prophesied. He's the one who comes in the line of Judah, the great son of the King David, as was prophesied. He's the one who would ride on a donkey into Jerusalem, as was prophesied. He's the one who would suffer and die, but have none of his bones broken, as was prophesied. Jesus is the one who comes to die for our sins. He's the true Son of God. God said he would do it, said how he would do it, and then he did it 2,000 years ago through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who through his death and resurrection overcomes Satan, overcomes sin, overcomes death, overcomes the darkness of this world so that we who believe in him, we have hope. Do you know that? That's what we have today. We have hope in God. We have a comfort, a truth that our God has conquered the darkness. The darkness has come to an end and the cross is a symbol of that. That's what we go back to, into the empty tomb. Because Jesus didn't stay dead. He wasn't defeated, but rather he defeated the darkness. And so you might say then, okay, to play the skeptic then, well, if Jesus crushed Satan and ended this darkness, why are God's people still being persecuted today? That's a good question, right? Okay, if, if he killed them, why does the reign of darkness still seem to be present? Well, I guess we could look at that in many ways, but one might just simply go back to um, when we look at the cross. When someone went to the cross in the first century, as they were carrying the cross, they were considered a dead man walking, right? When they were nailed to the cross, no one comes down from the cross alive. No one comes down. The Romans were, expert, were experts at killing people. They knew when someone had died. They made no mistakes. When you're on the cross, you stay on the cross until you're dead. In fact, even, in the, the, even on Jesus' death, the two guys next to him had not quite died yet, so they went ahead and broke their legs to make sure that they would die much more quickly but when they came to Jesus he was already dead they stabbed him with a spear in the side and out came water and blood surely he was dead so the Romans knew what it was to kill someone on the cross so when someone went to the cross even when they were still alive when they're shouting when they're cursing when they're trying to spit on those who might be before them when they're writhing out in pain what are they though they're a dead man they might still be alive in one sense, but they are dead. They will not come down until they are dead. The judgment has been sentenced. It's being carried out, and they are dead. And that is Satan today, and that is the darkness, and that is our sin. In Jesus, it has been conquered. In Jesus, he has conquered it all. And Satan, it's as if he's been nailed to the cross, and he himself may be shouting, he might be writhing in pain. He might be spitting. He might be somehow making his presence known here on earth, but he does so not from a victorious position, but as a defeated foe on the cross. 
Because at the cross, Jesus defeated him. And the resurrection proves it. And we know that that fullness of the consummation of that defeat will come when Jesus returns. Because we read clearly in Revelation, when Jesus returns, Satan and all who have fallen will be thrown into the lake of fire. And their darkness will be utterly cast out. Amen. Amen, indeed. But how do we respond then? Okay, so if that's the truth, we know that the reason it still exists is because it has been defeated, and yet the fullness of that defeat will come when Jesus returns. So we understand the darkness still is here on earth, although it doesn't have power in the sense of a victorious, as if it's going to prevail. It has been defeated. So how do we respond? Well, we notice in verses 15 and 16, that one like the Son of Man, surely this is God, he instructs Gabriel, I want you to go give Daniel understanding. And so in verse 27, we read how Daniel responds. And so what we read in verse 27, And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Daniel was sick. I just want to stop there. Like, this is real suffering of God's people. This is what Daniel sees. God's people will suffer. God's people will not always be miraculously, miraculously saved like we saw in Daniel. They won't always be taken out of the lion's den. They won't always be saved from the fiery furnace. Sometimes they will go all the way through the darkness into death. And if we come to the New Testament, Jesus did not sugarcoat what it is to be a follower. Jesus says in Luke 9, 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus said to follow me is taking up your cross. It is a sentencing of death. Because when we come to faith in Christ, there is a war that we're entering into with this world. And we're now coming into the citizen of citizenship of God's kingdom. 2 Timothy chapter 3.12. This is written by the Apostle Paul. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 1 Peter 4.12. The Apostle Peter. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Acts 4.22. Written by Luke. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Nowhere in the Bible does it say when you believe in Jesus, your life will just get really good. It does promise us eternal life. It does promise us everlasting peace. It does promise us fullness of joy. And all of those things we taste now and we will have fullness of in the kingdom. But we know that in this earth, we still exist in this darkness, in this battle. And that there is suffering. And we don't have to put plastic smiles on our face and just simply say, it's going great. When we're asked how we are, there is a sickness. And it is okay to be distraught over things in our life, over things in this world. I think we see that right here. He was sick for days. He sees the suffering. He doesn't go, well, great, God's in control. He's sick also. There's a sickness about it. And so when we look at the church, we ought to hurt for the church today as millions of Christians throughout the world are being persecuted. Our brothers and sisters in Christ. So it is good to hurt for them. It is good to cry out for them. And we too, we can echo the words, how long will the darkness last? So that is okay 
Do not think as Christians, we put plastic smiles on, we just suck it up and we keep walking. No, that's not what happens. We understand there is a battle that takes place, and it's hard. And there are tragedies that take place. There are brothers and sisters that will lose their life. The good news is that not even death separates us from Christ. Second, we see Daniel does his job. Notice what he does in verse 27. Then I rose and went about the king's business. Daniel does his job. John Wesley, a pastor, theologian, he was writing to a preaching engagement one day when he was asked by a stranger, hey, what would you do if tomorrow you knew Christ was going to return at noon? Like how specific he wants to be. Not just tomorrow, but noon. So this is what Wesley says. Well, he reaches into his saddlebag, he retrieves his diary, he reads out his engagement for the rest of the day and for the morning of the next day and says, that, dear sir, is what I would do. The point was, John, said, John Wesley said, look, I live now for the kingdom. I already know what's going to happen. I know Christ has won. I know he's going to return. So I can live in light of that fact right now. And that's what Daniel does. He gets up and he goes about the day. He knows his God is in charge. He knows his God is ruling. He doesn't need to leave society and go to some bunker with lots of water and store up rations. Rather, he engages in the world, in society, and he persists and lives by faith each day. We don't need to be anxious about what is going to happen in the future because we know the future. There will be a darkness, but one day that darkness will completely be taken away. The message title is, uh, is, is Patient Endurance. That's what I titled this message. If you remember, two weeks ago, we're in, Revela- we're in Daniel chapter 7, and we went to Revelation 13. In Revelation 13, John describes a beast who will persecute Christians. It represents the, the powers of the state. And, and he walks through that there will be Christians who will suffer and who will die. And then he says this. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. So he says, listen to me. You know that we live in the darkness. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for endurance and faith of the saints. He says, we know what the future holds. We know some of us will die. Therefore, we endure. Why? Because we know that our God rules. Because neither the ram, the goat, the horn, the beast, or the dragon will have the last word. But who has the last word? The Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah, Jesus Christ, has the last word. And he's already given it. He gave it from the beginning. He's given it multiple times all throughout the Word. He declares it at the cross and at the resurrection. So on this earth, there will be times we cry out, How long, Lord? And perhaps, perhaps that's where you are. Perhaps you're in a season of crying out. And that's where you feel like you are today. You feel like you've lived in the midst of the darkness. Perhaps you're here, you feel beat up, chewed up, crushed, shamed, guilted, miserable, like the darkness of the world just just presses in on you. Maybe that's where you're at at this moment, or maybe you have family members, and you have friends, and they feel this darkness around them. Hear this. 
we can endure. We can patiently endure. The battle has been fought. Christ has won. There is hope. The victory is ours. Do you know that? The victory is ours. The darkness, it will not last. The light of the sun, of the glory of God is dawning. And we know, we know that day is coming when it will rise in all of its victory, in all of its splendor, in all of its glory. And at that day, there is no darkness. The events of this earth, they're not chaotic. They feel like they're chaotic, but they're not chaotic. The rulers, the kingdoms, and the powers, they're not all powerful, they're finite. And just as God ended the Medo-Persian Empire, and Babylon, and Greece, and Antiochus Epiphanes, and Alexander the Great, he will end all powers one day, and only his power will be left to see. And it will be very visible. So what do we do? We rise with hope. Again, is this hope just dandelions and sunshine? No. It's full of reason. It's full of logic. It's full of a foundation because of a God who has revealed himself throughout history, has declared who he is, what he will do, and then has done it. And he has overcome the darkness through his son, Jesus. And he will give us the grace each day we need. I was talking to someone today. You've probably heard the God doesn't ever give you more than what you can handle. That's a lie. Every day you have more than what you can handle. Every day. The reason you can, and, and they, the reason you can endure is because the grace he gives you to endure. That's how we interpret that. That's how we understand it rightly. Everything is more than you can handle. It's only by the grace of God that he gives you exactly what you need each day that you can rise up, that we can get up like Daniel, that we can rise up in the truth of who God is, what he has done, that we can go about our days and our marriage and our work with our children and go through whatever suffering, whatever darkness there might be, and we can rise and we can go through it, not because we're strong, but because the one who is infinitely strong has given us his grace that we can walk each day. And I believe the church, we are a means of helping one another. I hope you know that. When, when one of us is going through darkness, that's where others of us come alongside and strengthen and encourage. Do you know that? And that happens to us so that when, when someone else is in darkness, now we can come to them. Or let's say we as a church are experiencing some type of darkness. Another church can come and encourage us. Or we can go to another church and encourage them. God's love is revealed every day through his church, through his believers. That's one reason we need one another. We need to come alongside one another. That's why we have table groups. That's why we gather every week together. Now, if you've not yet believed in Jesus, if you're here and you're wrestling with this, one, I'd love to talk to you. There's others here who would love to talk with you and pray with you. But I would pray, I encourage you, believe in Jesus today. Trust in him. Experience the hope, the peace, the comfort that only comes from the God who actually does rule. From the God who knows the pain of the darkness because he sent his son into the darkness that he would die so we could have life. And three days later, his son rises victorious. 
Lastly, and I want to I end on this because I think it's good and I think we need it. Look at, look at the rest of Daniel, verse 27. <clears throat> but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Daniel doesn't have all the answers. Do you notice that? Now, did he have understanding? Yes, he had some because God told Gabriel, go give him understanding. Did God's purposes fail? No. So Daniel got understanding, but he still has questions. I tell you, this is good news for us. Because God, in his word, he answers many of the questions we have. He answers many of the questions we don't have. But guess what? He doesn't always answer all the questions we have to the fullest that we want. Do you realize that? There are some things we still say, but wait, I want more. Do you ever have that? Do you ever say, okay, God, but, but why? I get that you're good. I get that you're righteous. I get that you're faithful. I get that you're just. I get those things, but I want to know one more detail. Guess what? So did Daniel. And so as I think every Christian has ever lived. But guess what? Because God has revealed himself in his word, we know that he is good. We know that he is gracious. We know that he is just. We know that he is merciful. We know that he is kind. And we know that everything he does is for his glory and for the good of those who love him. So when we don't understand, guess what? That's okay. Because we have all of this other knowledge and truth that we do understand that tells us even when we don't understand, our God is good. And he always rules. And his rule will never stop. And though it might be questioned by the powers of darkness, they will not prevail against him. And they've already been defeated at the cross. So have hope. If you're here today and you go, okay, I'm tracking, but I still have questions. That's okay. I have questions. Everyone in this room still has questions. Every Christian that's ever lived has questions. But we have a God who has revealed himself. A show that he rules. And nothing takes place on this earth on a whim. But everything has been ordained. And while we understand a lot, there are some things that we don't. But we can patiently endure because our God is good. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to ask the men to come down, and we're going to uh, have communion. Our Father, we come to you today. God, you are good and holy and righteous and faithful, God. And I thank you that we can gather here today. And we can come around text, tough text, like chapter 8, that deals with suffering and pain and, and sovereignty and all these things. And God, we might have questions, but we know that you are good and righteous. And God, I thank you that today we celebrate that you have overcome the darkness. You have overcome the darkness through the death and resurrection of your son. And Father, we pray for the grace and for the strength and the power that comes from you that each day we would get up and we would rise and we would patiently endure with hope with the hope that you are in control, with the hope that your son is returning. And on that day, on that day, we know all darkness will be cast out forever. And we will only experience your love and your grace forever. In your name, Jesus, amen. I want to ask the men, men are going to go ahead and prepare to take offering. And just as they get ready to do that, we do questions. I have one question that was asked today. You're always more than welcome to question anything we say in the sermon. And if we're able to, we have time, we like to answer them. The question was in Luke 9, 23, how do we daily take up our cross and follow Christ? It's a good question. How do we do that? 
I think sometimes we, we think there's really elaborate ways that we do that. Um, but just to real briefly say, um, one of the ways we take up the cross each day is, is, is by coming into the Word of God. By coming into God's Word, growing in our understanding of God's Word, believing in the truths of who God is, what He has done. And ju- just starting there, praying to God. I'm holding this like it's the Bible. It's not the Bible. It's my iPad. Uh, But if I had a Bible in my hand, it would be believing the truths of God. There. There we go. Um, You know, there's other things that we can do. But I'd say we start there. We start coming into the Word of God. Believing in the Word of God. Asking for understanding. Asking for wisdom. Meeting with others. Growing in that wisdom. Praying to our God, saying, God, I trust in you. I'm asking for your help each and every day. I'm asking for grace to live according to this day. Just starting there. That might sound simple. That might sound like Christianity 101. It's, it is. It's a simple way we begin to take up the cross each day and follow God. The team's now going to lead us in closing.